If someone just acquires property and starts a, a child slave farm, well, I, I'm sorry, we don't we don't just say, oh well, they're on their own property. You still have the right to go in and stop violations of rights, no matter where they're occurring. In my view, you sound like Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> oh, you're gonna yeah. get me in trouble, Austin. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I like to do. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark. Welcome back to my friends, my enemies, my compatriots, my companions, and whoever just might have stumbled upon this show. This is the Lions of Liberty podcast. This is episode number 120. You can find the show notes for the show at lionsofliberty.com slash 120. Today's show is sponsored by Health Excellence Select. If you are sick and tired of dealing with your Obamacare insurance, you need to look into Health Excellence Select and the amazing concept of health sharing. For more information, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. We are also sponsored today by LibertyManiacs.com, your one-stop shop for political and satirical apparel and merchandise. As a listener of this program, you can receive a 10% discount on your entire order by using discount code LIONSOFLIBERTY at checkout. So head on over to LibertyManiacs.com and express your inner Liberty Maniac. My guest today is a former producer for Freedom Watch with Judge Andrew Napolitano, probably the last cable news program I watched regularly before its cancellation. He is now the editor-in-chief of the LibertarianRepublic.com as well as LibertyViral.com and the host of the Freedom Report podcast, Austin Peterson. Welcome to the Lines of Liberty podcast. Thank you for having me, Mark. Well, Austin, it's great to have you here. And it's no secret that you like to sort of rile folks up. Poke the bear, if you will, in the liberty movement. And nothing really seems to poke the bears more on, on every side of the discussion than the dreaded minarchy versus anarchy debate. You recently had a lengthy conversation with Tom Woods on this subject. And we're going to spend a little time today discussing why you take the minarchist position uh, in that debate. But first, I want to get to know you a little bit better. So why don't you tell us how you first got interested in the ideas of liberty? Well, I first got interested as a young boy because I was raised on a farm in Missouri. So I grew up and was raised culturally conservative, socially conservative, and fiscally conservative. And I kept, I maintained those values until I hit puberty and then things got a little sexy. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm kind of like, I'm not quite socially conservative anymore. I'm a little bit more tolerant, perhaps. I'm a little bit more sex, drugs, and rock and roll than I had expected. Uh, perhaps my parents wished at the time. So um, with uh, social, socially liberal values and with fiscally conservative values that I never abandoned, I, I looked at myself and said, why am I such a freak? Why am I all alone in the world with no one who thinks or feels the way that I do? I feel like a conservative around liberals and a liberal around conservatives. What's wrong with me? Is there anything that I can take that could solve my problem? And then I started reading books. We started with Ayn Rand. I went from there to Ron Paul, and from Ron Paul, the explosion of knowledge began where I uh, began to read Henry Hazlitt, von Mises, Rothbard, Hayek, and my favorite, Robert Nozick, and uh, my beliefs started to blossom from there. It's, it's kind of that standard path a lot of people take where we, we realize our, our political beliefs don't really fit into the standard paradigm, but we don't have a, a label to put on it. We don't really have a direction to go. And then someone kind of sets that spark, whether it's Ron Paul or whether you pick up a book by Hayek Rothbard or whoever, and that really helps you focus. And even if you don't agree with everyone you're reading along the way, it really helps you see that there is an actual set of beliefs that are at least discussing these ideas that at least it does fit into in some way. Now, tell us a little bit about your time working with Judge Napolitano. How did you end up landing 
getting that gig. How did you end up getting in there with Fox News? And what was it like working at Fox News, working in, in essentially what I guess what many people refer to as the corporate media? Right. Well, I'll tell you the truth is the truth is, is that it takes a long time to become an overnight success, man, because <laughs> it, 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 it took me a year and a half to wrangle that job at Fox. And when I was working in 2008, I got a job at the Libertarian Party. And then in 2009, I worked for an international think tank called Atlas. But during that time, the judge had his podcast on Fox. He wanted his own show. He didn't know who I was, but I had read all of his books. And so what I did was I contacted the judge, uh, sent him an email just directly and said, hey, I would like to help you get your own show. What can I do? And he goes, well, you know, I have no idea. You young people, you know, come up with some some creative idea. And that was before Facebook and, and Twitter were really a big deal. This was uh, 2007, 2008. So. Because Ron Paul had had all these huge meetup groups and there was this giant movement, that had, libertarian movement that had coalesced behind Dr. Paul and his, his presidential run was over, I harnessed the energy that was the unused energy of the movement at the time and put everything I could into getting the judge his own show. And I was basically a traffic driver. So whenever the judge would have his show, I would co you know coordinate online with everyone to help drive traffic to that show so that Fox would actually consider giving his own show. And I had a, a team of interns that I brought together and uh, I put them all on an enormous research project. We put together a 30 page report pulling from Cato Institute and other media sources that we you know showed how big the libertarian audience is in the United States. And we submitted that research report, gave it to the judge. The judge took it to Roger Ailes' office. Roger Ailes said, this is brilliant. And uh, the judge turned around and said, okay, Austin, if I get this show, you'll be the first person I hire. And that ended up being the case. I mean, there were a lot more steps in there. I had to go through an interview process. The whole idea behind the corporate media, of course, especially television, is to keep you out if you've never worked in it before. So the only way that I was able to get that job is because the judge demanded that no one be hired until I was hired. Uh, and so the talent usually gets what they want, and that's how I was able to break in. Awesome. That's really fascinating. It's a real lesson anybody can take that might think, oh, I can't accomplish this or that because, I mean, essentially there was no way you could just start a show and produce a show at Fox News in theory, but you saw a need for it. You saw a vision for it and you just went out and hustled and made it happen. And that's that's something anybody can take a lesson from for, for anything they want to do in life, not just expanding the ideas of liberty or that kind of thing. And what, what kind of observations can you kind of pass along to us from how you saw things operate at Fox News? Obviously, you guys had a pretty decent level of freedom with the show, at least while it was on, but I'm sure you, uh, there must have been some kind of headbutting ideologically that went on in the back room with a lot of the other talking heads there. At least I imagine so. Yes and no. I, I learned a lot, actually, about how journalism works. I, and I actually gained a greater respect for my colleagues at Fox while I was there. Um, and it, it made me a better journalist. It made me a better person because. Uh, you know, as libertarians, we tend to have be like other uh, in inside groups, and we have a fear and a hatred of the other. You know, so anybody who's not in our group, like uh, liberals or neocons, which, by the way, most of the staff at Fox are liberals. Like almost all of Bill O'Reilly's staff are liberals, and uh, the the only staff that was mostly all libertarians, of course, was the judges' show and then John Stossel's show. Uh, otherwise, it didn't matter as long as they could do the work. You know, uh, the thing that I learned while I was there too is that you know. Like mistakes such as Rand Paul not being included in a poll 
it, you know, libertarians freak out and they say, oh, this is, oh, they don't want to include him, blah, blah, blah. But I'll tell you, there's some idiots that work there and they probably <laughs> made a mistake. You know, th those things happen all the time. But then the the problem is, is that as libertarians, we tend to have a little bit more of a, we have a very distrustful kind of skeptical outlook on things. And we've been screwed by the media before legitimately. And what happens is that we automatically assume that it's all part of the big media conspiracy to, to shut us out. What we don't realize as libertarians, what people don't want to realize as libertarians, what libertarians do not want to see is the truth, is that the problem is not the media. The problem is that the people demand the type of media that they get. The media is, is a reflection of ourselves as a culture in, in, in some sense. Uh, and I actually got a lot of trouble because I was on Russia Today several times and I learned a lot about them. And libertarians love Russia Today because um, I think that uh, a lot of libertarians, we tend to be brainwashed like other group organizations. We are the cult of individualists who must all think alike. I think a lot of us have problems with. So a lot of libertarians trust Russia Today over Fox News, despite the fact that Russia Today is a Kremlin-funded propaganda outlet from a government. And Fox News runs as a free market institution dedicated to serving their customer base. So what did I learn? I learned a lot of things that I thought were, you know, that were problems with the system, but also a lot of problems with the libertarian, not philosophy, but the outlook and approach to dealing with our philosophy when the rubber hits the road. Well, sure, there's often that knee-jerk reaction in libertarian circles. Whenever anything looks like it could maybe be shady, they jump to the conclusion of, well, it must be the corporate conspiracy or it must be a government conspiracy when, and, and there certainly are those conspiracies sometimes, but sure. you know, a lot of these things can be chalked up to pure incompetence. Libertarians always like to talk about the incompetence of government, and yet somehow right. they, they, they believe every single thing is a, is a giant plan to really screw us all over, and sometimes it might be, but we have to actually do some research into things and think things through and not just have a knee-jerk reaction and call everything a conspiracy. And you had a really interesting observation there when you, when you mentioned how you know you kind of get the media we deserve as a society. I mean, it's not Fox News gets ratings. That's why they produce the programming they produce. And in many ways, that kind of relates to our government. I mean, everyone's always angry at the state and, and the state doing this, the state doing that. But in many ways, the state is a reflection of what society wants at large. And that's kind of where we need to start. That's where we need to address things with, with our fellow man, not just generically lash our anger out at the government and, and anything they may or may not do. Um, so, also, let's get into a little bit of the nitty-gritty here, the stuff that, that people really want to hear about. And, and as I mentioned at the top of the show, you had a, quite an interesting discussion with Tom Woods, a former guest on this show, regarding the anarchy versus minarchy debate, which never seems to end. And you do take the side of minarchy in this conversation. I like to keep this program, it can be a very difficult line to cross, but uh, I like to keep this program somewhat accessible to people who are kind of new to these ideas and not, not necessarily blow them all away, but uh, we probably will do that eventually here. But why don't we just try to stick to the basics in the beginning here? So why don't you just explain exactly what minarchy is to you and why do you label yourself a minarchist as opposed to an anarchist, which many libertarians such as Tom Woods identify themselves as? Well, you know, Tom Woods even says that he has some problems with anarchist philosophy and some things that don't satisfy him when it comes to anarchist philosophy. Um, I just happen to take it a step further and say that those reasons justify not embracing it um, in, in entirety, simply because the, like I said to Tom, you know, anarchists replace government with governments that you don't call government. And I used to be an anarchist, and but there just there's too many rules. You know, the problem with anarchy is is that there are a lot of rules. 
rules that you have to follow. And of course, if you don't follow them, there are going to be consequences. The problem is, is that most anarchists are, are like, well, if you steal a stick of gum, we're gonna, well, I can shoot you in the face, you know, or uh, if you cry, if you, uh, if, a, if a, if a Girl Scout trespasses on my property, then there'll be a landmine there to blow her up. And then Tom Woods says, that's ridiculous. That's a straw man. Why can't there be proportionality? Well, the problem with proportionality is my proportionality is not the same as your proportionality. And vigilante justice, I'm sorry, but I don't, I don't think most people want to see vigilante justice on every single crime committed. You know, if, there, if that were the case, well, then, you know, all of the egregious crimes that are committed by police against minorities that, you, that uh, libertarians decry will happen on the, either the same scale or greater by the same racist people who will take those positions up in private institutions and inflict their racism and libertarians will be fine with it as long as it's done by a private institution. So there's no sense of justice in, in an anarchic society. There's no sense of understanding of reciprocity and there's no definition of what is proportional in terms of violence. So to me, I think that the anarchist argument falls apart, especially when you take a look at Robert Nozick and the way he defined a state, a minarchist state, the night watchman state. To me, a night watchman state is much less complicated than an anarchy, because in an anarchy, you'd have so many different communes, like Hans Hermann Hoppe described in his books on democracy. You would have way more governments. Again, they are governments. They, anything that has that authority to use coercive force, you don't have to call it a government but it has the same effect as government. And so the idea is to limit government, not create new ones. When you say a government that has the authority to use coercive force, where do you see that authority coming from? Does it have to emanate from consent of the governed? Because, I mean, listening to your interview with Tom Woods, even a half hour into it, neither of you had mentioned the idea of consent of the governed. So, I mean, where does that play in? Only to a small extent. You know, you, you need to have the consent of the governed to a certain extent. Not everyone can consent to be governed. Anarchists think that because they are of sound faculty and of sound mind that other people are of sound faculty and mind as well and that's not the case. The reality is is that some people are born without sound faculties or sound mind meaning that even Friedrich von Hayek who argued for a social safety net and I disagree with him on that and, and you know there are some libertarians even who talk about minimum basic guaranteed incomes you know and I don't go that far uh, but the reality is is that some people are born with mental defects. They are born psychopaths they're born sociopaths and then the anarchist says oh well those are the people who try and get into government yes well the point is is that with a government limited in power you limit the ambitions of the sociopaths in a free market you let you can have Hillary Clinton can have all the nuclear weapons she wants Jeb Bush can have all the nuclear weapons he wants as long as they're private as long as it's private right no the idea is is that we must limit power and we need coercive force to restrain people's uh, ambitions against one another and you know you've got to read game theory from John Nash you have to understand how people play against one another you have to you know look at the tactics that social Democrats use to grow government in order to understand how government grows uh, and to me you know consent of the government again you know maybe you should have to be a taxpayer to, to vote you know maybe you should have to own some land to vote I mean maybe you should have some sort of, of a barrier to entry and to me we already have that we have representative democracy so you don't actually vote for the president you know you don't actually vote for 
uh, uh, certain certain uh, aspects of this democracy. You vote for an elector, right? Somebody to vote on your behalf because the founders knew that people were stupid and that people were not all, they were not always in command of their faculties. So an adversarial system of representative democracy and a constitutionally limited government to me is the way to go. Let's try to parse down some of these principles a little bit. And, you know, you, you, many libertarians, as you know, hold dear something called the non-aggression principle, the idea that one should not initiate force against their fellow man. Now, in the Tom Woods interview, you, you criticized this principle. So I just want to be more clear on that. Are you opposed to the actual concept of the principle, or is your criticism more in, in sort of making it the central defining aspect of libertarianism? Yes, I do have a problem with it being the central defining aspect of, of libertarianism. It's, it's fine. No problem for to teach the non-aggression principle to children. And anarchists generally have the mindset of children because they cannot possibly deal with ultra-complex issues such as foreign policy for the most part, how to deal with foreign policy or foreign trade. They have a mindset of a child. They must keep – you have to keep the non-aggression principle as the centerpiece of libertarianism if you are of a black or white thinking, a unitary mindset because it, the non-aggression principle is something that you teach to a child. Okay, And then you start to get into higher order of principles. Non-aggression principle falls apart when faced with almost any conflict outside of a schoolyard, um, uh, whether it be a, a conflict over property rights, whether it's a simple conflict of, uh, uh, let's say you're, you are in a battle defending your life and you accidentally shoot an innocent bystander. There's collateral damage involved there, you know, but you are simply defending your own life. And so the non-aggression principle is an attempt to, um, I think, infantilize libertarian ideas and to keep it simple for the stupids. And that's why I do talk down to these people, because for the most part, they're not, most of the anarchists aren't people like Hans-Hermann Hoppe or Murray Rothbard, for example. The, the disgusting rabble of the anarcho-capitalist movement today will get nothing accomplished because these effete, pseudo-intellectual, ineffective, basement-dwelling neckbeards have no political power. They have zero political power. They have zero social power. And they cannot uh, get their principles enacted because, number one, their principles fall apart when, when uh, met with the most rudimentary um, moral and logical problems that exist in the real world, and two, because they do not have enough social power to be able to convince their fellow citizens of the superiority of those principles. So you, you basically see the non-aggression principle as, as essentially not a bad concept, but an oversimplification of, of how things play out in real life. Is that accurate? That's correct. And, and also I'm disparaging the character of the people who mostly hold this, this principle as well. I'm disparaging their character and their philosophy. Do you think that more of the problem is really just the, the definition of aggression? Because if we're only saying non-aggression principle, well then, all right, so what's aggression? And and maybe the idea is we just need to further define aggression. I mean, one example you guys use is the um, the example that Rothbard used, which I couldn't disagree with more, the idea uh, that, you know, a parent is not obligated to feed a child. And therefore, I guess I, mean, I guess a baby can just wither away and die if, if that's okay. But to me, that is actually aggression. Because if you're putting a human being in a position to rely on you, which you are if you're giving birth to them... And, or and you're not at least making an arrangement for someone else to feed them, or the hot air balloon example. If I bring some up in my hot air balloon, they're putting in a, 
themselves or I'm putting them in a position to rely on me. So then if I take another action which harms them, whether that be refuse to feed them or toss them off my hot air balloon, I am committing an an act of aggression. So I I think you're right in the sense we can't just go around pouting and saying non-aggression principle, non-aggression principle, because there is nuance in the world and we need to look at the nuance of each situation. But I mean, I I sort of, do you disagree with the actual principle at hand? I mean, I I know you said you don't, Mm -hmm. but do you see a situation where aggression is justified, I guess is what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, here's the, here's the thing. So like, there's, a, there's a lot to suss out there. Here, at its base, so let's say you and I disagree on what is aggression. Who's responsible with deciding what is aggression, right? So the problem here is that there's no authority. And, you know, it does, I'm not saying that there has to be a government authority, of course, defining what aggression is. I think that that's probably the most superior method. But certainly I'd, I would listen to any anarchist with a, with a superior system. But when it comes to the definition of aggression, you know, we as a, like when it comes to like the universal serial bus, the USB cable that my microphone is plugged into my computer with, we did not need the government to create the protocol that set the standard all the way across the industry. That naturally arose as a part of the free market. Understandable. But when you're dealing with something more complex such as actual physical interactions or violent interactions between human beings, that's when the marketplace is not going to arise a solution that the that both parties can agree on. And let me tell you why. Because there is no such thing as a neutral third-party arbiter in a free market when it comes to violence. The reason is is because in a civic system where there are laws, where you have some form of a court system, right? That whoever is getting paid, if you're paying for the court, whoever's paying for the court, the court is going to have a natural bias towards. And so the reason why we have a court system set up such as we do is because it is supposed to, I say quote unquote, supposed to act as a neutral third party arbiter. Because in order for you or I to, to resolve a dispute, you and I are going to have to go to a neutral third party. And sometimes I can't afford to pay for a lawyer if you're accusing me of a crime. You can accuse me of a crime also as many times as you want and basically put me out of business. Or you could put me in prison because you say I, I, you accuse me of murdering someone and I have no civil right against double jeopardy. Now, I, I was wrong in the debate with Tom Woods when I said that lawyers were a natural right. Uh, I, I should have said that lawyers were a civil right. And there are natural rights and there are civil rights. So if do we really want to return to a state of nature? There, and, and if so, why don't the anarchists just go live out in the woods and be hippies? You know, why don't they just go like live in the state of nature? I would prefer to live in a civic organization, a civil society that has certain civil rights. The, the, the problem with anarchists, of course, is that there has been no explanation for how civil rights would be afforded because anarchists only look at natural rights as as negative rights and there are no they say there are no other rights well i'm sorry but there are such a thing as civil rights and if you don't recognize that well then you do need to eject yourself from society Oh, I'm glad you make that distinction between natural rights and civil rights because there, there is a distinction to be made because to me a natural right is basically just only discussing the realm of negative rights in terms of you know there it, it's describing what cannot be done to you what an, an aggression that cannot be inflicted upon another person you have the right to your property a right to your life and, and that right should not be inflicted upon by anyone and then we have civil rights which is really are essentially man-made constructs and, and men should have the right to sort of create agreements based on certain things like saying if you live 
live in our society, if you live in our community, you're protected from double jeopardy. You cannot be accused of the same crime over and over just just for one example, or or you have a right to a jury trial. Now, we have to differentiate that, in my view, from natural rights, because if we say everyone has a right to, say, a lawyer or, say, a jury, well, now now if no one wants to serve on that, on that jury or someone doesn't want to be your lawyer, well, now if it's a right, we have to force someone to be that attorney or force someone to be on that jury. No, you don't. All right, so tell no, us why. You don't, you, no, no, because, no, you don't force someone to be a lawyer. Uh, people get paid to be lawyers, and that's ridiculous to think that, oh, you have to force someone to be a lawyer. Yes, there's the whole island idea that, oh, okay, if, how do you have a right to a lawyer if there's only two of us on island? Well, when we're talking about civilization. You know, three people in a civil society, three people make society. Uh, and so, so a third party wouldn't be forced to arbitrate a dispute in such a situation, but they could be paid to arbitrate a dispute. And what was the other one that you mentioned? The uh, juries. Okay, yeah. So nobody is forced to be a juror, right? You know, you know how you get required to be a juror? You vote. So don't vote. So what about like a case where, say, someone cannot afford a lawyer or they, there's no lawyer that can, will take their case on, on the free market or what have you? I mean, do you justify, I guess, confiscating funds from other people in the community or just taxing? I, I don't want to say confiscating, but, you know, whatever taxation scheme there might be, how do, can you justify that in order to hire a lawyer for someone that cannot get one on their own? Yeah, of course. You can justify taxes. How do we parlay that into rights? I mean, where do you do, to make that distinction between natural rights and what you call civil rights? Well, a natural right is something that uh, is innate, and and uh, and usually those are defined as negative rights, rights that you can uh, you can initiate without uh, any requirement placed on any other people, no positive obligations placed on on someone else. But a civil right uh, does sometimes require it does become a, a positive right, and if you the the it depends on if you have um, if you have a, a, a court system that can prosecute you, well then you have a civil right to a lawyer. Uh, and of course there would be lawyers in that kind of an institution or system of law, so there would be plenty of, of opportunities for people to 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 represent you. So I, I think it's sort of, I don't, I don't know, it's kind of a red herring here to say that like that you're gonna have to force a lawyer. Like when has a lawyer ever turned down a paying job? I, 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 mean, I think maybe that's happened once in history, but I certainly can't think of anything. Well, what if someone doesn't have any money to pay them? I mean, what if someone is literally broke and no one wants to take their case? Right. So, so honestly, so the best way for, for a, a system of taxation to work is to work on the most voluntary basis. Uh, at the Libertarian Republic, we have uh, an article that's called Six Ways to Fund Services in a Libertarian Republic. And those are the, uh, I, we attempt to lay out the, the least coercive methods of taxation. Tolls, fines, fees, lotteries, sales taxes. Those are the least uh, coercive forms of taxation. Uh, and, and uh, you know, there are problems with those forms of taxation, but, uh, you know, you're not going to solve the problems uh, by not uh, proposing any new solutions. Of course, if you, uh, I know how annoyed people would be if they had to pay a toll every time they went on somebody else's property, and people are not going to vote for that kind of system, but it's certainly more voluntary because it gives private property owners more um, more uh, authority, sovereignty over their own property. So, you know, there would be, of course, no eminent domain whatsoever, and that would mean that, you know, certain roads would not be built because certain people would just simply refuse to allow a highway to go through. Um, and so, unfortunately, you, you do have to have some form of taxation, and, and uh, that form of taxation should be the most voluntary possible. Uh, I vote for a lottery. I vote for lotteries. I vote for sales taxes uh, because sales taxes are non-coercive in the sense that you don't have to buy anything. 
just like you don't have to vote and be a lawyer. In some sense, if one, once you begin participating in, in, in an activity, uh, you know, there needs to be a cost that you bear on that. For example, if you buy, if you purchase a Chinese uh, coin or if you purchase like a, a, a Chinese um, Hello Kitty doll or a Japanese Hello Kitty doll, for example, uh, there probably is going to be a tax on that. What do you mean if? <laughs> if okay, right? So if uh, you import something from Japan, you're going to have to pay a fee and it, you know, if, if, if there's a private institution that runs the port, you're going to have to pay a port fee, right? So it's going to, you're going to pay the fee either way. So it can either be through the government or it can be through the private institution. In most sense, I'll go for the private institution, but you're still going to pay. If you want to have a, system, a civil system and you want to participate in, a, in the civilization such as we have now, which I, don't, I really don't know anybody that wants to return to a state of nature other than the most extreme radical hippie anarchists, in which case, again, I invite them to do so. Um, and you can see them trying to do that, like in Liberal Land, for example, or like they tried to go in the Honduras, and, for example, and, and, and I'm all for it, you know, like uh, secede as, as far as you can go. Uh, but uh, if you want to live in civil society, in civilization, then you're going to have to uh, understand we have a system of, natu- of, ci- of civil, natural rights and civil rights, and th- those do require some obligations on your behalf. So, Austin, you mentioned secession there. Now, do, you, do you believe that U.S. states should or do have the right to secede from the U.S. government? No. no Why is that? Absolutely not. Uh, because the Constitution of the United States says that the federal government is required to, in, to, um, instance, or to it, re- guarantee a a Republican form of government in the, in all of the states. And so if those states were to secede, then the federal government couldn't do its job. Um, and because I like the uh, Bill of Rights and the 14th Amendment, and guarantees the privileges and immunities, uh, I, which has been a little bit defanged, of course. Um, the, the, the 14th Amendment is the, you know, the, the post-Civil right after Civil War Amendment. Uh, but it's a very libertarian amendment. And I would like, uh, I would like to see I would like to see more decentralization, but not secession. Because again, if a state secedes, you know, uh, voluntarily, that that seems like to be one thing. But the problem with that is, of course, if fifty-one percent of the people in the state vote to secede, well, then you're forcing forty-nine percent of the people who live there to do something that the, you're, you're coercing those forty-nine percent of people, and and so that's really what becomes a problem. So it's not legal. For the states of the United States to secede, the only way to make it legal would be through force of arms. And I don't see that as advancing liberty in any sense whatsoever. In, in what sense would, would any state secede for the purpose of, uh, of, of granting more liberty in the United States? And don't even say Texas because I guarantee you the first thing they're going to do is keep out Mexicans, crack down on, on every other civil – on marijuana and drug users and start executing somebody every other hour. Uh, I like the, fed, the, uh, the federal system because what it does is it provides a check and balance on state power because a state, pa- a state can be just as tyrannical as the federal government as we've seen in Jim Crow and as we've seen in many other problems across the United States. So no, I don't think secession in the United States is legal uh, and I don't, I don't say that secession as a whole is immoral but simply in this point in time in history that this is not the time for secession. So you had mentioned earlier, kind of when referring to like Liberland and places like that that are trying to start their own things and sort of secede their own areas of land. Is there any sort of way you can envision people being allowed to secede? Like, say, you mentioned anarchists just living in the woods. So what if some anarchists do stumble upon some property, some unclaimed land, call it their own? Do they have the right to just be anarchists on their own property and their own system? Or should everyone be sort of under the reign of some sort of government? 
Mm, it depends. I mean, should should uh, should Muslims in Dearborn, Michigan, be allowed to secede so that they can institute Sharia law? Right now, and, and that, I think that's the important distinction to make is that right. at least to me, no one is no one should be sort of um, not subject to to natural law, so to justice. I mean, if someone just acquires property and starts a, a child slave farm, well, I, I'm sorry, we don't we don't just say, oh well, they're on their own property. You still have the right to go in and stop violations of rights, no matter where they're occurring. In my view, you sound like you sound like Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> oh, you're yeah. gonna get me in trouble, Austin. Yeah, well, that's what I like to do is to think outside the box because, unfortunately, too many anarchists are so inconsistent in their in their philosophy that they think that they believe that they, they say they believe in natural rights, but they don't have they don't want to enforce them. To to the problem with anarchists is that the NAP is optional, right? It, you, there's no requirement to enforce these beliefs that they say they believe in deeply. And to me, if you actually believe in the NAP, those law those laws should be enforced. Awesome. Before I let you go, I just want to get your opinion really quickly on just a few few topics uh, that have been, I guess, um, points of discussion among libertarians recently. Uh, why don't we start with uh, a controversial figure like yourself in many ways, Mr. Rand Paul. What's your opinion on him? Oh, I'm a big fan of Rand. Um, you know, he's not a perfect candidate. I didn't like it. Uh, like, if I was going to criticize him, I'd say I didn't like his whole moral crisis. Gay gay marriage is a moral crisis. So I'd probably, you know, slap him on the butt for that. But other than that, I mean, you saw his filibuster against the NSA. You saw his filibuster um, on the uh, unilateral use of drones to execute American citizens by the executive branch. Uh, that shows to me that that guy has got uh, our best interests at heart, and he seemed, he's my number one pick when it comes to the presidential race, that's for sure. What about Silk Road and Ross Ulbricht? Do you feel that Silk Road is should be and Ross Ulbricht should be praised as they are by many libertarians for, I guess, creating this, this wonderful online drug marketplace, or do you think that there are, are some problems with associating libertarianism with that? I mean, there's obviously problems with associating libertarianism with it, but it doesn't mean that I disagree with it. It's just because something cosmetically is inappropriate doesn't mean that it's appropriate um, overall. Uh, you know, again, my my arguments about uh, like the cosmetic problems of anarchists, you know, the um, you know the uh, the ones that don't wear, wear deodorant and stuff like that, is simply that they aren't able to advance their principles if you can't stand within five feet of them without smelling you know horribly. But the um, when it comes to Ross Ulbricht, yeah, it is a problem, but uh, there there are, there's more positives in some sense and then there are negatives so uh, you got to weigh the pros and cons on this one you know he, he actually made the drug trade safer in the sense that he um you know he made it took out the you know the drug the the third party the drug dealer that you know would would necessarily you know lead to violence if there was ever a dispute so because any disputes could be handled you know directly through the dark net that was that was a safer way to handle problems, and uh, you know it was always caveat emptor, which I which I am for. Uh, now, when it comes to the accusations about him, you know, calling out a hit on on certain people, um, I we I haven't en- been able to independently verify that he did that or that he wasn't led on or goaded by the FBI agents to perform to 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 call for that. Uh, but even if that were true. Um, the the problem is the government makes it illegal, so he has no way to protect himself or his products or his marketplace. So he was acting in his own self-interest because he couldn't call the police. He couldn't call the, the legitimate police to protect him and his and his and his interests. He had no authority to do so. And in an in and Kapistan, uh, that's legal, right? Of course. If we lived in a, if we lived in the anarcho-capitalist um, uh, paradise, if somebody was threatening my interests, I could just call out a, a, a hit on their head, and that would be totally legitimate, right? 
Well, isn't that the problem then? I mean, that, that's the problem for, to me with vigilante justice. We- that's correct. That is the problem. And that is why anarchy doesn't work. And to me, that's that's the problem with promoting black markets like Silk Road, not as concepts that they're bad, but to promote them as a strategy for liberty, because that's that's not our ideal world. Our ideal world shouldn't be one where we live in the black. Our ideal world should be one where we're all open to the light of day, where transactions can take place out in the open and where we don't need to have people that think they need to hire assassins to protect their stuff, where they can actually go to some sort of system. And we might disagree on how that system is is formed or founded or funded or what have you. But there needs to be some sort of justice system that operates in the light of day. Right. But even if that system was out in the open, if there was a dispute and, and, and we lived in a, in, a, in a system without justice, without, with, with no judicial system, then still his hits would have been legitimate because he was, he was possibly uh, legitimately defending his own property and his own interests. So do you want to live in a world where it's legal to sell drugs and to, to call out hits on people? Because I don't. I want to live in a world where it's legal to sell drugs, but that when it comes to disputes between private property, that there is a neutral third arbiter. And that neutral third ar- arbiter should only have an, just enough power to, to enforce contracts and to protect life, liberty, and the property of individuals. Well, Austin, that's an excellent closing statement. So we'll wrap things up there. Before I let you go, why don't you just give everyone the full roundup of where they can find all your different websites. Obviously, they can go to libertarianrepublic.com, libertyviral.com. Just let them know where they can find everything else you're doing, including uh, the podcast, The Freedom Report. Sure. So the best way to get the Freedom Report podcast, you can go to iTunes, iTunes.com, subscribe, get ours every single day. Um, if you uh, really like the show, I'd really appreciate a five-star review on iTunes. That helps me out a lot. Um, and uh, if you don't, of course, you can go to Stitcher.com. It's an Android app. Stitcher.com. You can get the Freedom Report podcast and uh, the LibertarianRepublic.com. Every single day, it's your home for economic freedom and personal liberty. Austin, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was a great conversation, and we'll talk to you again sometime soon. Thanks for having me on, Mark. Thanks, man. Take care. Bye. Guys, if you're anything like me and like to wear your political beliefs on your sleeve, Liberty Maniacs is there to help you literally do just that. Liberty Maniacs is an independent brand that designs and sells some of the world's favorite political and satirical apparel and merchandise. From funny political t-shirts to libertarian-minded posters, art prints, humorous mugs, and thousands of other products sold by some of the most trusted retailers, Liberty Maniacs has become a top source for liberty lovers of every stripe all across the globe and a thorn in the side of everyone from the NSA to top politicians. And now, Lions of Liberty listeners can get 10% off your entire order by entering the referral code Lions of Liberty. That's all one word at checkout. Again, that's referral code Lions of Liberty for a 10% discount. Head to LibertyManiacs.com. Wear something worth saying. I know nobody likes dealing with health insurance companies. It's bad enough that you're sick, but now, thanks to the ACA, you're forced to pay for all sorts of coverage you don't even want or need, and the odds are you are indeed paying for it. I was frustrated, too, until I did some research and found out about health sharing, where like-minded, health-conscious individuals get together to cover each other's medical costs. And now the fine folks at Health Excellence Select have taken it to another level with a complete health care service, combining health sharing with personal care assistance to help you find the doctors that you need at the best price, 24-7 phone access to physicians, along with discounts on dental and vision. 
And if that wasn't enough, they even have a website that works, if you can believe that. Guys, if you are struggling with a solution to your health care needs, look no further than Health Excellence Select. For more information, head on over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed my interview with Austin Peterson. And I know, I know some feathers are going to be ruffled by a lot of the things that Austin Peterson says. And I don't agree with everything that he says conceptually, but I do think he does bring up some good points that are worthy of addressing. And look, I am in full agreement with the non-aggression principle 100% of the time. But simply stating non-aggression principle over and over doesn't necessarily explain a full vision of what liberty is or what libertarianism is. And frankly, I'm not even sure it's the starting point. I think it's a conclusion we can draw based on our discussion of individual rights. Now, anything that we talk about when it comes to politics has to focus around the subject of rights. Because rights determine what we can and cannot do upon our fellow man when it comes to inflicting violence upon them, when it comes to interfering in their everyday actions. And when we're discussing individual rights, the natural extension of that, of having the right to take your own actions as long as they're not interfering with others, natural law, if you will, we have to therefore respect property rights. Property rights are a mere extension of individual rights, and property rights are the basis upon which humans, which individuals, are allowed to form any kind of conjoining organizations, whether they want to call those governments or what have you. Now look, today's modern governments, like we have now, are not necessarily founded based on legitimately acquired private property. Essentially, they were founded upon fiat land grabs. People show up. I mean, the king of England pointed at the colonies and said, these are your lands. The king of Spain pointed at certain sections and when people showed up and landed and said, now this is your land. Well, that's not really a just way to acquire property. You can really only acquire property if it's justly acquired consensually from someone else. Or if you're the first person to land there, the first person to start using it, and no one else has a claim upon it, well, then you can claim that land. Now, I'm getting really deep into the conception here, but I I think we really have to have an, an idea and an understanding about how man can legitimately form governments, how man can legitimately form bodies of law and organizations to enforce natural law. Now, I don't use the same definition of government as even Austin Peterson used. Even Austin Peterson mentioned that government is sort of a coercive force. Now, if we just pull up Merriam-Webster, a pretty well-respected dictionary, and we look up the definition of government, the definition just says, a group of people who control and make decisions for a country, state, etc., a particular system for controlling a country, state, etc., or the process or manner of controlling a country, state, etc. Now, we can look at that definition and apply it to our our modern times and, and look at modern governments and say, oh, look, these governments are coercively taxing individuals. Many people don't consent to the taxation they are getting. Many people do not consent to the regulations handed down upon them from the United States government and from other governments that act coercively towards its citizens. They'll then make the conclusion that all governments must be coercive. But if we really just take the concept of government, of governing over our own property, there's nothing in there in that definition provided by Merriam-Webster that says it must be coercive. If we look at this at the very basic level, at the idea of property, the idea of one person owning property, now basically this just means you can set certain stipulations regarding your property. Say, just to keep it really easy, you don't want smoking on your property. And if you have a guest on your property, you're allowed to say, you're not allowed to smoke on my property. And if someone lights up a cigarette, you're allowed to ask them to leave. Now, that doesn't mean 
because they have technically aggressed upon you with the cigarette smoke, despite your objections, you can then shoot them for that. <laughs> Doesn't mean that at all. I do believe there has to be some kind of proportionality when we're looking at justice, when we're looking at defense of property. But if we agree that people have the right to set rules upon their own property, then naturally those rights should extend to multiple property owners over any amount of conjoining property they de- that they decide to set rules upon. Now, take that one property owner, if he has 50 neighbors that all come together and say, we want to form a government, we want to form a system, a body of law that will sort of enforce the rules of our conjoined property. Now, those rules can be just simply enforcing natural law, enforcing property rights, enforcing the right to life, setting up a court system, setting up a police system. That's all fine. There's nothing that that goes against anybody's rights for that. Now, many anarchists and anarcho-capitalists might argue that method is not efficient or that it'll be better with competing defense agencies and competing justice systems. And that might be okay. People should have also have the right to form systems where there are competing defense firms and competing justice systems if that's the system they want to live in, if they're basing that on their own property. But they cannot dictate to other people that they must live in those systems either, because that would violate the rights of others. You see, man should be free to form any systems he chooses. The key is, are these systems violating people's rights? Do you have the literal consent of the governed? Now, look, this is very philosophical. You can say, well, that's that's not how our present system is. That's not how our country is. That's not how our layout is. And you would be right. But we do have to decide and look at what is right in order to even come up with our correct positions on things. And it's complicated by our present system because, you know, the United States was not fully founded upon private property. The states were not founded on private property. So we're already starting off in a situation where it's, it's all kind of jumbled. At the same time, there's nothing wrong with the structure of the United States government per se. There's nothing wrong with, say, cities and towns founded on private property contracting together to a state government. There's nothing wrong with those state governments contracting out to a federal government for enforcing natural law or what have you. But again, that's not how our systems are founded. So we have a bit of a problem here. And guys, I've mentioned this before, but this is kind of the reason I don't put myself in a quote-unquote minarchist camp or an anarchist camp, because really what I'm about are individual rights and using reason to achieve your positions to have a conception of what individual rights are. And we do have to distinguish between different kinds of rights. When we're talking about natural rights, there's no positive right that can be there in terms of natural rights. Natural right is really just a negative right. A right not to be aggressed upon, a right not to be interfered with, as long as you are not interfering with others. However, when you talk about things like a right to a lawyer, a right to a trial by jury, a right to not be brought up for on a charge a second time, double jeopardy, all things that we talked about with Austin Peterson here, I agree with those things in concept, and I agree. This is why we sort of do need man to form structures, to form systems of law, and many of these things come about through common law over the years. It doesn't necessarily need to be dictated top-down from an authority, from an executive, or what have you. But people do have the right to form systems where these things are available to its citizens to go through a justice process. I think certain things like that are absolutely vital. However... That doesn't mean that we have the right to aggress upon other people in order to fund these things. You know, you can't just point to your neighbor on on different property that hasn't agreed to any of this and say, all right, it's my right to a lawyer. It's my right to a trial by jury. You must fund it, and I'm going to attack you or assault you if you don't fund it. 
This is where, to me, the city-state principle, this is something I discussed with Shane Whistler back in episode two of this show, which we'll post in the show notes. The city-state principle is really what, what solves all these problems in so many ways. It's based, the idea that man can form governments literally, not, not figuratively, literally based on their justly acquired private property. And it's at this point when people are forming these systems, where individuals are forming these systems, that we can come to reasonable ideas and reasonable agreements about what should entail a just system, eliminating the idea that of double jeopardy, guaranteeing a right by a jury of your peers. These are positive rights, but if they're brought together by agreement, by mutual consent, well, they're perfectly good and perfectly right, and they should be standard of any actual justice system that takes place. Now, we discuss Ross Ulbricht and Silk Road, and the idea that you might say he might might be justified to protect his assets in a black market, but that's that's really just the problem with black markets, that the only way to really protect your assets at the end of the day is to resort to violence. Now, of course, you can try to negotiate things. There's, there's private arbitration. I'm not saying these things always must lead in violence, but at the end of the day, if you don't have some sort of system, whether that's an anarcho-capitalist sort of private competing court system or whether that's a minarchist system that, that Austin Peterson sort of describes... Or whether that's a system, hopefully, of mutual consent, one actually agreed upon by its citizens. The point being, if you don't have a justice system, if you don't have a system that operates in the light of day, you're going to get a where the strongest survive situation. Now, that's not my objection to anarchy, but it is my objection to black markets as a strategy for liberty. That's not the ideal world we want to present to people. A world where you have a problem with someone, so you hire a hitman to take him out. That's not a proper presentation of what liberty is or should be. Now, I have no problem with the idea of starting a website so people can get drugs. But we should be aiming for a society where that's not illegal. Not aiming for a society where we bring everything underground. In order to have justice, this stuff needs to take place out in the open. That's why I don't have pseudonyms in all these forums I discuss things on. That's why I'm not just, you know, I'm not Mr. Liberty, a a guy in a mask at the other end of a microphone. That's why I'm Mark Clare, and I put my positions out there, and I discuss things openly. If we hide, and we squirrel away to foxholes in black markets, we're not advancing liberty. We're not teaching anybody anything about principles. At the end of the day, our philosophy and our positive vision of what a libertarian or a liberty-based society is, is the most important thing. And we do have to have these discussions. We do have to sort these things out amongst ourselves. I think it's the most important thing we can do. Because you can't really present a political ideology to the rest of the world if you can't even agree on what that is. Now, I, I agree. Many libertarians may never actually agree at the end of the day. And we should still come together with people who share similar views to advance certain things. Like, you know, I'm not going to give everyone a libertarian purity test to, to join them on legalizing marijuana, to join them on decriminalizing drugs, to join them on trying to stop aggressive wars around the world. But when it comes to parsing out our ideology, there's just nothing more important than figuring out what that ideology really should be, what is right, what is just, what is moral. I'm not saying I have the answers, but I'm going to have the conversation. I'm going to keep having that conversation with people a lot of people might disagree with, like Austin Peterson. I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that agree with Austin Peterson, too. I'm a mixed bag. I I think he does bring up a lot of points. I'm not going to go around calling him a a statist and all this stuff that other people will just call him because he doesn't, you know, tow that sort of dogmatic company line. But these conversations are very important. That's why I have them with Austin Peterson. That's why I have them with Tom Woods. That's why I have them with Lou Rockwell. That's why I have them with people all across the libertarian spectrum, quote-unquote, if you will. 
I guess I've rambled it up today. This might be my longest post-show rant of all time. So I'm going to wrap things up really quick here. As always, i got to get my plugs in. Be sure to check out our work at lionsofliberty.com. If you like what we're doing there, ways you can help us out. Shop through our Amazon banner. Shop over at Liberty Maniacs. Support our sponsors who support this show. And of course, tell your friends about it. Email your friends. Post on your social media. Help us get the word out. We have no marketing budget. You, you with those headphones in right now, you are our marketing budget. Or maybe you're staring at your computer. Maybe you're staring at our YouTube channel. Don't forget, we put all our podcasts up on the Lions of Liberty YouTube channel as well. You can join us on our social media, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. Find us on Twitter at Lions of Liberty. Google Plus, we're pretty much all over the place, guys. Be sure to check us out on the weekends at LibertyTalk.fm at 6 p.m. Eastern on Saturday and Sunday and throughout the week at the Liberty Radio Network, LRN.fm. Until next week, folks, live long and live free.